Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Kamaraigal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge their ongoing contribution to the life of this city and region. Now, for regular listeners, you will notice the change in my welcome to country, and that's because Studio 19 is on the road coming to you from Sydney, and more precisely, the dining room table in my 90-year-old mother's house in a retirement village in Mossman. That is, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, so 2020, a living, breathing example of the way that we are now all working. We are mobile, we work remotely, we are connected, and we are working in ways we would have never thought possible even six short months ago. My guest today is Andy Penn, the CEO of Telstra, upon whose telecommunications network much of this new reality depends. And Andy also just happens to be running one of Australia's largest and most important businesses from a room in his home in suburban Melbourne. He joins me on the line. Andy Penn, welcome to Work With Purpose. Hi, David. It's great to be joining you today. Um, I saw a video of you the other day where you sent to your staff recognising the six months working, the, the milestone of six months working from home. And you said it was with mixed feelings that you sent that message. What have been the positives of this time working from home for you? Oh, look, firstly, I'm incredibly proud with how the team at Telstra has has been able to adapt. And one of the things I often sort of say about this COVID um, experience or crisis, or however you want to describe it, is it's the first time in my career, my life, where I've had to respond to a crisis while living it at the same time. Um, And because we're all affected by it, Telstra often has to deal with various different crises, whether they're bushfires or floods or cyclones. But generally speaking, most of us are not personally impacted by it, and yet COVID has impacted us all personally. And so firstly, I'm incredibly proud how people have been able to respond. So that's a definite positive. And then also I'm incredibly proud of how people have been able to adapt from working from home. Now, interestingly, David, prior to COVID, on average, our people work from home 1.7 days per week because we implemented something called All Roles Flex or maybe six or seven years ago, which was in the spirit of improving diversity in the workforce, which was about enabling people to work flexibly. So we were able to pivot to uh, working from home uh, really quickly. And so um, how we've been able to do that's also been a positive. I think the other positives, obviously, are people being able to be closer to their families, closer to their loved ones, uh, saving on commute time, Uh, You know, there's a whole bunch of, I think, sort of side effects that have occurred which are positive and that we can take forward into the future. But the mixed emotions comes from the fact that, yeah, I miss seeing people face to face. I I, I miss the informality of, you know, getting a coffee at the coffee shop in the morning and catching up with the barista and and then bumping into people, bumping into people in the lift or uh, in the airport or wherever it may be. I I miss those moments. So interestingly, though, Telstra... Um, with that program, All Roles Flex, you, you were ready to go. Many government agencies weren't. Many other 
organisations weren't ready for it. How big a strain did that put on the network of which you maintain? Well, the way to think about the network is that there's sort of, if you like, there's sort of two networks. There's what I call the sort of the residential network, but then there's the network that large enterprises and governments and big companies uh, and smaller companies have as well. And most governments and big enterprises have their own dedicated fibre networks, which have been put in for them and connect all of their businesses. So whether it's a branch office or a data centre or head office, that's actually all connected using dedicated fibre and dedicated connectivity. Whereas when we're all working from home, we're essentially going over the residential network, which is either a combination of the NBN and or our mobile services as well. And so if you can sort of conceptualise that, what it means is that we suddenly went from all doing all of that activity within the confines of a dedicated uh, network built for that organisation to bringing all that home with us and doing it over um, over the internet and over the NBN. And uh, I think the networks have held up remarkably well. Um, and, of course, the other thing to think about a network, it's a bit like a road in a way. You have to build it for the peak period of traffic um, because, you know, even if 90% of the time it's not busy, you have to build it for that 10% of the time when it's really busy. The network, uh, the domestic networks or the residential networks, if I can call it that work, or the NBN, their peak period has historically been around about, you know, eight or nine o'clock in the evening, which makes sense pre-COVID. That peak time went up 20%, but actually the overall traffic on the network went up 70% during the day. But so as you can see, it's different at different points of the day. The other thing that occurred as well as what's suddenly become very important is upload. So historically, most of the network that we use sort of, if you like, um, privately, we're doing a lot of downloading, you know, streaming videos, downloading or, you know, surfing the web or whatever it may be. Of course, when we're doing business over the network, as we are now on a video call, that actually needs upload speeds as well as download speeds. So they've been some of the dimensions we've had to manage. And have you been able to manage it quite successfully? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty good. I mean, of course, there is always going to be the odd wrinkle or the odd area where there's been issues, but overwhelmingly, um, people have been able to move to working from home. I think big organisations, I was talking to the CEO of NAB the other day, we helped them shift 35,000 people to working from home, you know, over the space of a very short period of time, and and it's generally worked pretty well. I think... The organisations that have been able to adapt quickly are the ones that have historically had not so much the bandwidth in place but the other technology in place um, to be able to accommodate such as whatever applications they may be using, Microsoft Teams or um, VMR technologies or Cisco, whoever it may be. But then also the ability to work effectively virtually. It's a bit, it takes a bit of practice, doesn't it, to, mm. to work over video conferencing in, for, with people in multiples of locations. I mean, I think the quote of the 2020 will be, uh, you're, I think you're on mute, <laughs> or can you go on mute? <laughs> so some of those hygiene factors, again, because we've worked this way for quite a long time, we, we, we're quite used to be able to sort of do that and, and bring people into the conversation. So as you start to look towards the future and look to this new reality what what are you seeing what are your the people involved in your forecasting area what are they saying to you in terms of the way 
our work styles are going to adapt and change? And indeed, what sort of skills do we all need to start to acquire in order to be effective in this future where there is this mixed reality of we work from home, we go on the road, we visit our mothers, we can work from there, um, we can go on holidays, we can work from there, um, we go back into the office uh, and we can work from there. So in terms of how people need to be thinking about how they uh, should be working in skills, what's what's your advice and what are some of the adaptions that you're making inside the, the Telstra workforce? Yeah, no, look, uh, great question, David. I think three things I would say. Firstly, um, flexibility is going to be crucial in the future. So the organisations that are going to be the most successful are going to be those that offer the maximum amount of flexibility to their people to work how they want, when they want, from where they want. And, um, you know, we're all different. Some of us are more introverted, some of us more extroverted, and we all do different things, and some of those things are more amenable to being done virtually and or, or to be face-to-face. So I think the point is um, it's actually the ability to offer that flexibility that's actually going to make you an employer that attracts, you know, great talent and, and great skills. So if you want somebody wants to work in a call centre type of function, being able to actually set them up at home in a regional town, wherever they may be, as distinct from actually having to be in a, uh, in a call centre is really going to what's, uh, what is, makes the difference. I think the second point is really around technology, which is to have the technology to back that up because, you know, I sort of have been in a lot of discussions where people sort of say, well, you know, it's not the same, I want to be face-to-face. And, and, and I agree, um, of course, um, being face-to-face um, is, is fantastic where we can be. But not all video technologies are the same either or video experience is the same either. So having a high-quality picture, high-quality audio and the ability to have a maybe an application where you can share content and, and where you can actually engage with it makes a big difference and, and can dramatically improve the quality of working virtually as well. Um, so the technology is really important. The interesting thing about the technology is that... Um, you know, during COVID, we really saw more adoption of digital technologies in three months than we had in the previous five years. And the interesting point about that, because others have said the same, but the, the epiphany out of that for me is that the constraint previously to adopting the technology wasn't the technology. Because if it was, we wouldn't have been able to adopt it in three months. It was actually our ability and willingness to adopt technology. And, and of course, there's always a little bit of inertia when it's something new and you've got to change your, the way in which you work. And if there's no real motivation to do it, um, then yeah, people tend not to. Whereas we've all suddenly become very adept at different technologies to do virtual meetings. We've become adept at being able to use them socially. We've become adept at e-commerce. And I don't think we're going to go backwards. And so um, so I think the technology is equal. The last point I would make just quickly is is I think the other thing about this dynamic of all having to work from home and studying from home is we've actually dropped a lot of the shields of business. And by that, I mean the office or the hierarchy or the suits and ties. And and actually, we're inviting people into our homes. <laughs> and there's usually not a day that goes by when I'm, at, when I'm working these days when I don't have some sort of interruption in the background so that the, the postman might sort of drop off a parcel and the dogs would go nuts and or or my wife might be sort of um, 
want to come and talk to me about something. And, and I think that's humanised us a lot more. And I think that's, that's a good thing. And how we capture that humanity in our cultures going forward, I think, is going to be really important as well. That's fascinating, and, th- and and there's a couple of things I'll take from from um, from those last two uh, in particular. I think around that technology piece, the speed uh, through which, with which you're referring to that 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 adoption speed. How do we sustain that speed? Because I know conversations inside the Australian public service in terms of change and transformation, the leadership has seen this change, and they want to sustain the change. And I'm sure you're exactly the same. Uh, in your organisation, as in many other organisations, how do organisations maintain the pace? Well, I think it's um, it's partly. I think it, partly it will be self-sustaining in the sense. Generally speaking, I find when people adopt technology, they typically don't go backwards. But to your point, David, how do we sort of continue to accelerate? And I think that's partly about investing in new technology. Because my point was. The constraint previously wasn't that the technology wasn't there because we wouldn't have been able to adopt it in three months if that was good. However, now that we have adopted it, the constraint will be the technology if we don't invest in it in, in the future. And so that's going to be crucially important. I think the other thing is actually just removing impediments. So I was chairing the Business Council of Australia's uh, Digital Economy and Telecommunications Working Group, which was we made a number of submissions to the government about a fast recovery from COVID. There's a whole plethora of regulations, a lot of them not federal, actually, a lot of them, you know, going all the way down to local councils, which require paper-based engagement or certification or, um, you know, putting in an application requires you to sign documents and, and, you know, or, or doesn't sort of facilitate a cashless economy. And I think, you know, a very systematic run through all of that, whether that be in an organisation's own internal procedures, um, but also in, um, you know, from a government and a regulatory perspective, just trying to systematically eliminate anything, any bureaucracy that gets in the way of us engaging at a, at a digital level. And, and it's surprising how much, how much there is that still gets in the way of moving to a cashless society and a, um, uh, a digitally engaged society. The other, the other thing I would mention as well is um, uh, really in the space of cyber security. Um, and of course, the one thing that goes hand in glove with the expansion of the digital economy um, is of course, therefore, the more things that are online, the more they become exposed to cyber risk. And the, if you like, we're, we're increasing the attack, um, the attack area that um, we're vulnerable to. So very significant ongoing investments in cybersecurity uh, will also be very important in the future. Mm. How uh, d- can you estimate how long it might take to tidy up some of that regulation? Is it a big job, or could it be done quite quickly? Uh, I mean, I think if the will is there, it can be done quite quickly because a lot of it is in regulation as opposed to legislation. And regulation, as we know, legislation has to go through. Parliament, either state or federal, but regulation is usually just the local rules, and they can be addressed pretty quickly. So, um, but even interestingly, I, I was chairing the um, the government's advisory panel on cyber security, and they are looking at implementing a, uh, I guess a um, a significant regime 
for critical infrastructure, which is really about bolstering our defences around things like telecommunications, banking, uh, food, health, and that's going to require legislative change. Um, and the government has issued a consultation paper on it, which is just closed, but their aspiration is to get that legislative change through by the end of the calendar year. And that's got the Prime Minister's um, support and the whole of the government's support. So, so we can move fast um, when the imperative is there. Now, to, your, to the third point that you raised around that, that notion of, of more, you know, the humanisation, the, you know, the, the lack of hierarchy, that tends to suggest, you know, different ways of working, different ways of engaging um, with each other. How are you seeing that play out in your organisation? You know, what, what are you seeing that is different in the way that your people are working together? Well, I think um, there's just a lot more care between the teams and, and between the people. There's a lot more checking in with how people are going at a personal level, a lot more sort of building of, of empathy um, and I think that helps because it also translates into, you know, how we deal with customers and, and how we deal with, with other stakeholders as well. Everybody's become a lot more humanised in, um, in, in this process. I mean, I've had video meetings with, you know, some very senior people in both government and um, in or reg- head of regulators or, or otherwise, and, and it's been a very personable uh, conversation, and I help. I think that helps build rapport, builds trust, um, and I think actually ultimately leads to a more effective working environment, working relationship. In fact, our employee engagement scores have never been higher. Um, they're um, what we call our engagement score. We're, we're basically at eighty three, which is one off um, the top decile high performing companies in the world, and that. In fairness, we were on that journey before COVID hit, but during COVID, it's actually um, increased even more, notwithstanding the, the impact it's had on people. Mm. Now, one of the things that struck me actually through this series of podcasts, Work With Purpose, and regular listeners will know that I often talk about it, it's this, probably for me, it was this discovery really about the collaboration and partnership between business and government, particularly in those early stages when you know, we were dealing with a, a genuine health crisis that was having knock-on effects all the way through various supply chains in, in all areas of, of the economy. And you, you've mentioned there before that you've been involved in a number of committees, be it cybersecurity or, or the Business Council. Can you describe your working relationship with governments? And I'm not just talking about the federal government, I'm talking about working relationship with government at, at federal, at state, and also at a local level. Yeah, no, look, it's, uh, hopefully it's, um, I, I like to think it's, it's a very good relationship. And of course, Telstra being the organisation that we are, everybody has a, um, an interest in um, our, our sort of services that, that we're providing, particularly during these critically important times. And, and there's a lot of um, areas where government and, you know, very senior ministers and all the way up to premiers and prime ministers um, need to understand, want to understand what the implications of some of the restrictions are that are in place and and how we can advance our technology to um, support and address the effort to 
manage the pandemic and also for a, a fast recovery. And the thing I've learned is that um, all, all of them have been incredibly open and incredibly um, engaging in speaking to people like myself or, or other leaders in in business to get as much input as they possibly can. And so I, I've been, you know, incredibly impressed actually during this period with how government has responded at, at all levels and um, and how open they have been to seek input and consult with business, whether it's directly. I've had one-on-one calls with many very senior people as well as through the Business Council of Australia, as well as being invited into chair, as we've just discussed, advisory councils on cyber security. Um, you know, that one was, in fact, last time around, when the government did their 2016 cybersecurity strategy, there was not an industry advisory panel. The government, they did appoint some independent people, but essentially it was a closed sort of process. On this um, this time around, they appointed an industry advisory panel, which I chaired, and we made 60 recommendations to government. And again, that was a very collaborative um, approach and I think hopefully was a significant contribution to a very substantial set of initiatives on cybersecurity and an all-time record $1.7 billion investment by the government in building our cyber defences. Hmm. But but again, I suppose I look to the future once more and if, as you're suggesting, there has been an improvement in the relationship necessary because of the crisis that was uh, taking place and the need for people to work together in partnership, how then do we sustain that improved relationship in order to uh, capture some of the benefit of what has taken place, but also to help us to deal with what is coming? Um, Nobody knows what that is, but one would sort of, you know, looking overseas and looking in other places for example, you could suggest that, you know, times will get a bit tough. So again, how do we keep those relationships, Keep how do we keep strengthening those relationships between business and government in order to deliver benefit for, for the Australian people? Well, I think they have to be done at, at multiples of, of levels. Um, you know, they have to be done individually. They have to be done through various different advisory um, groups. They have to be done um, you know, through panels. I, I, I mean, we're all the same people. <laughs> we're the same people that were working together pre-COVID and we're the same people now. And I think, you know, there's, there's a number of things, hopefully, that we can take out of this crisis that will be beneficial for us um, in, the, in the future. And I think one of them is a, um, you know, perhaps a newfound appreciation on both sides of, of the challenges that we respectively face. I mean, it's not easy. Um, I've absolutely no doubt in, in government. Um, uh, and it's not easy running a very large, complex business either. And I think the whole experience has brought us closer together in terms of understanding those respective challenges and perhaps being a bit more empathetic towards them in the future. Um, Andy, one of the features of this podcast is we we take questions from IPA's uh, Future Leaders Committee, and I have a couple of questions here that I'd like to, to pose if I could. Um, Steph McLennan from Geoscience Australia asks you, how has COVID shifted Telstra's longer-term vision 
particularly with the way it works with government. What did the 2020s look like six months ago and what does the coming decade look like now? Well, it's interesting. I, I did a speech earlier in the year, February, I think it was, where I was sort of talking about um, the 2020s and um, a, a couple of things. Um, one was really just how we sort of sit at the cusp of a the next industrial revolution or technological revolution, which all sounds a bit sort of dramatic. But the, the point was is that we were about to face, in any event, another very significant step forward in the digitisation of of, um, of the world. And by that, what I mean is that if you look back over the last several decades, um, digi- in terms of going online and becoming digital, a lot of services have become digital, but the physical world, generally speaking, hasn't. By that, I mean you now have the opportunity to infuse into the physical world sensors which actually start to enable you to move towards more significantly towards robotics. Um, And so the thing about the 2020s that's important even before COVID was that we were seeing a number of technologies mature at the same time that enable this, and that's 5G, cloud computing and artificial intelligence. So if you think about it through the lens of a government, you know, for example... Uh, a local government might want to have a smart city. What What is a smart city? It's a smart city is, is a city that is actually infused with intelligence to make the operation of that city far more efficient. So lampposts that can you know, sense when it's time to turn on and off again or a garbage bin which can sense when it needs to be emptied and filled again. And, and that occurs by virtue of infusing the physical world with the digital, and the way you do that is you put sensors in things. And 5G enables you to then monitor those sensors because you can do it wirelessly as opposed to having to sort of put hard wires to them. So, you, And you can monitor millions and millions of them. And then cloud computing enables you to process the data that's coming out of them at scale with very significant compute power relatively cheaply. And artificial intelligence enables you to actually turn all of that data into something interesting and meaningful Uh, And that's what gives you a closer system. So um, I think all that COVID has done is just completely accelerated this whole migration to a digital economy and a digital world. And the Prime Minister in his press club speech last November said he wanted um, Australia to be a top five leading digital economy by 2030. And I, I think... COVID is only going to accelerate that and um, you know, it'll be interesting to see in the upcoming budget what initiatives the government is looking at to investing in that. But one of them that gives you a clue is literally only last week the government announced a $4.5 billion investment into an upgrading of the NBN, which in of itself is a clear measure because in the end, a digital economy doesn't work without a telecommunications network because that's the backbone of it. And so, again, I think you're seeing a recognition there of that acceleration and the need to invest in the digital economy. Okay. Now, second question is from Michael Sinasi from PwC. And Michael asks you, with COVID barriers impacting skilled migration for Australian organisations... Does Telstra anticipate any critical skill shortages within its workforce? And if you do, how do you plan to mitigate these? 
Well, a couple of quick thoughts. I mean, firstly, yes, the, um, on the one hand, COVID barriers are impacting skilled migration. On the other hand, working flexibly, we can recruit anybody in the world and they can work from wherever they are in the world. And so actually there's a double, there's a double side to it. I've, I've got a lawyer who's, who lives in Canada um, who's worked flexibly with us for a long time as a very senior role and happens to live, as I say, on the other side of the world. But we don't have operations in Canada. They just happen to be where they live. So I, I think that's one interesting thing. Um, however, I think, you know, more broadly, um, definitely skills in digital capability. So software engineering is a good example. I think Australia basically produces about 1,500 software engineers a, a year. India produces 40,000. Um, so that is something that we, we absolutely need to build. And cybersecurity skills um, is another one where we will need to see you know, f- further investment because, as I say, as the cyber risk increases, and absolutely we're seeing very significant increases in malicious activity, as that increases, we need to bolster our cyber, def- cyber defences like we've never done before, and that's going to require um, skills that are not necessarily readily available at the moment. So if you just look back at that 2030 target set by the Prime Minister ha- with and with what you've just said um, as context, what, what hope or chance do you think that we could get to the top five by 2030? Oh, I think if there's a there's a will there on part of government, I, I think absolutely I think there's the opportunity for Australia to get there because, you know, we're not as big an, as a, and as complex a country as, as many others that would have more, if you like, constraints and barriers to get there. I think the one thing I always observe is Australia and Australians are, um, they're quite technology advanced. They're, they're early adopters of technology. Uh, and I think so, therefore, with the right investment in the digital underpin, which is the sort of telecommunication and cloud networks, and I think with you know, the building out of skills and the regulatory reform, uh, I think the Australians and Australian companies um, will, will absolutely um, be pleased to do so. And one of the things I observe is that some of the big leading tech companies in the world look to do stuff in Australia first. Um, I've just announced a big um, partnership with Microsoft. Yeah, with Microsoft. Microsoft. Yeah, yeah with, and, you know, Satya Nadella, who's the global CEO of Microsoft, and I did this press release last week. Why is he interested in Australia and Telstra, which, you know, candidly, we're not the biggest market of his in the world and we're not, Telstra's not the biggest customer, but he is because we're at the forefront of telecommunications and technology thinking. And so he knows that if he can trial stuff here and it works here, then he knows he can roll it out in the US or in Europe. And so, um, you know, I I think um, we've got a lot going for us. Hmm. Um, Listen, just a a final question to wrap up, a personal question. What have you learnt about yourself? In the past six six months, what what's something that surprised you about yourself? <laughs> what have I learned about myself? Um, I miss painting. <laughs> really? So I um in my spare time, my um I paint, um, but I haven't been able to go to my art studio because it's not where I live and it's beyond the five kilometre <laughs> restrictions, and so <laughs> so I found that I've had to f- sort of find other ways to create that exercising of the other side of my brain. Um, and I've, Winston Churchill wrote a book once called Why I Paint. And the whole point about why he paints was that actually it exercised a part of his brain 
that he didn't have the opportunity to exercise while he was doing his day job. And, right. um, and that, that's one of the things I've learned about myself is I do need to sort of try and keep my creative side going. It actually helps me in, in my sort of, in my business life. And I, I've missed that a bit and I've had to find different ways to achieve that. And, and what, what have they been? What have you replaced painting with? Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to paint on an iPad. Ah. And, and so there's an application and funnily, um, I'm on the board of the NGV and a couple of years ago, the NGV, the National Gallery of Victoria, had David, an exhibition by David Hockney, um, who's done some digital painting and I was very, very fortunate to meet him and, and I asked him about his iPad painting and he, he basically took my iPad from me and he helped me download the app and got me started. So um, I've been doing some stuff on the iPad. It's not quite the same as sort of using oil paint, but it's, uh, it, it works. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Andy Penn, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time today and really helping us really look to that Look to the future. Um, optimistically, there's a lot of change that is going to take place. And really, I think that the pandemic has helped us to, I think, self-reflect. I think everyone's taken the time to really think about themselves. And really, the, the, the future can be very exciting, but we're going to have to work and we're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to um, acquire new skills and we're going to have to lean on sort of the best of ourselves as well. You know, and, uh, you know, that, that um, insight you had around you know, the world, people being a bit more human, a bit more empathetic, and whether that will, I'm sure that will help us to drive to um, and, and sustain higher performance from organisations over time. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, David. Really, really appreciate it. And I agree with that. I'm an optimist and uh, we choose how we <laughs> look at the world and I look at it optimistically. Uh, thanks, and thanks to Andy, Andy Penn for joining us. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast networks and as we... Uh, announced last week, uh, GovComs, in partnership with the OECD and the European Commission, will present the world's first virtual global conference about the future of government communication as part of the OECD's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. So please Google GovComs Festival to register. It's free. But if you would like to make a contribution, please fill out the expression of interest and share your thought leadership with government communicators from around the world. Uh, for Work With Purpose, if you do see the social media promotion for this episode and the links, please pass it on. And a review or a rating would be fantastic and help us to be found. Thanks again to IPA and to the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support for Work With Purpose. This program would not happen without their support. And a big welcome to our new CEO, Caroline Walsh. This is her first Work With Purpose. Uh, so great to have Caroline on board now and the other members of the IPA production team. And certainly looking forward to continuing to work with them in the weeks, months and indeed years ahead as we continue to talk about public sector and we can continue to talk to people like Andy Penn about the major contribution that government and business can make together in order to deliver benefits for the Australian people. But that's it for now. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. Thank you.